0: Well, good morning. morning. Hey, welcome to Bridgewater. We are so glad you're here. Uh, my name is Matt, and uh, it's just my joy to be with you this morning. Um, Before we get into today's term, we're going to do a standalone uh, one week just on missions and what missions means for us as a church and how you're involved in that and how you can get uh, even more involved in that. But before we get into it, I wanted to just give you a heads up about where we're headed next week. Um, We are going to launch a a six-week series, studying the first section of the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, And this is going to be a really important series for us and maybe for somebody you know. Um, If you know somebody who... Um, refuses to walk inside of a church building, this would be a great series to invite them to. Um, We're going to be looking at a church in the first century that was by far one of the most messed up, uh, bizarre churches you've ever heard of, and yet God still chose to work through his grace in that church. And so um, if you know somebody who uh, has been disenfranchised with the church, uh, we're just going to have an honest conversation about um, how the church gets it wrong, but how God has grace for that, but how uh, we as a a church want to We want to examine. We want to grow. We want to see what are we needing to uh, apply from God's word into our life as a church so we can be healthy and God-honoring. So we encourage you to come back next week. It's going to be a great series. Uh, We're going to talk about missions, and um, this is a subject that's really close to my heart. Um, I love talking about it, and um, yeah, I spent five years of my life overseas, so if I get a little zealous today, I'm not sorry about it. But I want to read a story to you this morning of a man from World War II because it's a really fascinating story that I think it um, kind of lends very well to uh, where the conversation is going to go today. So there's going to be some pictures on the screen, um, but I want to read some of this because I I want to get the facts straight. But Robert uh, Matlock Trimble grew up in right around here in Camp Hill, PA, and he served as a bomber pilot with the US 8th Air Force in England. And um, basically, when his tour duty ended in 1944, um, he was given the option to go home and meet his little girl, which he uh, hadn't uh, been able to meet at that point. He was off at war when she was born or he could go into Russia and basically have a a really easy job of picking up dead airplanes and flying them back. And after talking to his wife, they discussed that the best option was for him to go to Russia. Um, Not sure how that seemed to be the best option for them, go home and meet the baby or go to Russia. Anyway, um, they chose to go to Russia because at that point, most of the fighting was outside of Russia. So it seemed like a pretty safe move. Um, But what happens is he lands in Ukraine and finds out he's been lied to entirely about what his job is supposed to be. So he thought he was going to go pick up a dead aircraft. But in fact, he was sent on a mission to go rescue uh, prisoners who had been abandoned or stranded throughout Russia. Um, if you're not too familiar with World War II history, the Allied forces all agreed to take care of each other's prisoners and help each other out. But that meant something very different to Russia than it did to the rest of the Allied forces. And so a Russian prisoner, um, even if he was rescued from a Nazi camp, was often put back into a camp that was far worse than the camp he just got out of. Um, and if he made it into another camp, even usually they were beaten, uh, robbed, and kind of left for dead because they didn't die for socialism. So to be a Russian prisoner was was awful. But But they also didn't take care of the allied prisoners either. Um, They would do the same thing. They would rob them. They would beat them. Um, Basically they were seen as a traitor. And so it was very dangerous to be a allied prisoner even in Russia though they were allies. So this guy gets sent on a mission to go find and rescue as many of these prisoners throughout Russia underneath the Soviet um, secret service super paranoid police um, all by himself. He had no backup. He had no formal training. He was a Boy Scout before he became a pilot, and uh, he was sent with diplomatic status and some money to go basically uh, rescue these allies. So he was super mad, as you all would be, when he realized that they had lied to him about his mission, but he agreed to take it up, And in the process of doing that, um, he was basically supposed to get them to a port, and from that port, uh, Britain would take them out. But he was um, going through one of the towns and he'd heard about these guys living in a barn. And so he went to the barn and he found 23 allied soldiers living in there, um, incredibly emaciated, struggling to stay warm. Uh, They were British and Americans and he put them in a horse drawn carriage and he snuck them out by basically bribing the guards with alcohol. I'm assuming it was vodka and lots of cash and got them out of there. And then um, in mid-March, he ended up finding a B-17 bomber. You can throw this up there. Um, I don't know if this is the exact one, but it's a plane from that era that he flew. and. Um <laughs> it was a really funny story, but apparently um, he was kind of fighting off the Soviets for it, and he was able to repair it just before the Soviets' uh, backup reinforcement came, and he flies away only to realize he doesn't have enough gas to really get anywhere, and he hits a snowstorm, so he has to land it, and he just lands randomly in Poland. He stays at this Hotel George, but there he finds another 22 Allied soldiers that he ends up rescuing from um, a Soviet prison, that they had escaped from a Soviet prison. But while he was there, he met this lady, Isabel, um, who was a, a French national. And basically she said, hey, can you, I know you're here for soldiers, but can you make an exception for us? Um, and he said, sure. And he starts handing her some money for some um, train tickets. And he says, how many is us? And it turned out there was 400 women who had been taken to this farm to work under the Nazi uh, control. But when they were losing, all of the Nazi soldiers left and abandoned them there to the farm. And so they had been waiting because they heard there was this American that was going to rescue them. And so he knew he couldn't just buy tickets for all of them. So he started... um, bribing the plane or the train operators to stop outside of the city, and they'd load up carts full of women, and they eventually uh, rescued all 400 of them. The, the, we don't know exactly uh, the total number because the U.S. won't admit that any of this happened, um, but the French government came out and honored him for saving the 400, but it's assumed he saved somewhere around 1,000 um, of these uh, uh, soldiers and women from This And and I've just been so struck by his story because um, here's a man who looked at the opportunity to go home and be with his family, a natural, perhaps even a smart choice, and yet he chose to go and rescue people he didn't even know at almost a sure and guaranteed death. Now, in 2009, he ended up surviving all this, but in 2009, the weight of it was so heavy that he finally came out and told his whole story. And he said one of his regrets, and you can throw this up there. This is uh, the book, Beyond the Call, if you want to read it. But um, one of his uh, things that weighed on him most wasn't necessarily what he saw, but the ones he couldn't save. And I was just struck by, here's a man who's willing to give absolutely everything to save people he doesn't even know. Which leads me to the question I want to kind of hang our conversation on today. And the question is this, is how far would you go to save someone you love? I would bet if I were to ask every single one of you, there is not a a mountain you wouldn't run up, a hill you wouldn't climb, amount of hours you wouldn't drive if it meant that you were able to save somebody you would love. I, I bet even for some of you, you'd be willing to go to prison, spend some time in prison and save somebody that I love from death. Yeah, sure, I'll go. Maybe there's no amount of money, and I would hope there's no amount of money that would ever get in the way of saving somebody. You'd, you'd sell the house. You'd do whatever you had to do. See, when we examine God, the question is, how far would God go? And God already answered that question in Jesus at the cross. The question of how far would God go to save somebody he loves is he would go all the way to the point of death. And while um, you may be here and you may not be a believer, I I think even those who aren't believers, because I know uh, the image of God is imprinted on your soul according to the Bible, I know that to be true, that I think even those who aren't Christians understand that self-sacrifice for the good of another. It's just in us because the image of God is in us because that's who God is. And think about what Jesus did at the cross, though, is he went for his enemies. Romans tells us that we were all enemies of God. Because of our sin, we stood in opposition to him, and yet he went to the cross to save us. So not only is it for someone he loves, because he does love you, whether you know that or not. It's for those who were actually his enemies because of their sin. That's how far he went. But here's the, the really cool thing about its It doesn't end there. When Jesus rose, he went to his disciples and he said, you've seen how far I was willing to go to save those I love. Now I'm telling you, your your line is the end of the earth. That you ought to, as a follower of Jesus, be willing to go to the end of the earth to save somebody that God loves. If you're a Christian... Whatever your title, whatever your job description, however long you've been in the faith, you have the same mission and calling. And it is to make the name of Jesus known to those who don't know him that they might find hope for salvation in him. That is the one thing we all have in common here is that that is your purpose. Whatever you do, wherever you are, that is your job. Because that is what he gave to the followers of Jesus. Because there are a lot of good, there are a lot of important things that we can do in life. But there is nothing of utmost importance like sharing the good news of Jesus. Because we can do a lot of causes that make a lot of impact here on earth. And we're going to talk about those. But only one thing has the ability to impact and alter your eternity. So in Acts chapter 13, I would encourage you to make some time this week and read through the book of Acts. It's a really fascinating book. But in Acts chapter 13, it's about A.D. 46, so it's about 10 years after the resurrection. Um, and something is beginning to shift within the local church that Jesus left behind. So for the first 10 years after Jesus left and went back to heaven, um, pretty much nobody left Jerusalem. Um, There's a few that scattered, but by and large, um, most of the church was Jewish. Um, which meant if you weren't in the Jewish bloodline, you probably weren't hearing the good news about Jesus. Um, and so they, they hear a lot of this over and over and over again, um, and they kind of turned off to it. So Paul and Barnabas, who were two Jews, um, are moved by the Holy Spirit to go north into what is now modern-day Turkey, um, and they began to preach the good news there. But as was their kind of practice, they would go to the synagogue, which is where the Jews in the town would meet, and he begins to preach there first because... They had the whole Old Testament, so they knew the context of what was happening, and so they go there and they begin to teach. And while Paul and Barnabas are teaching, the whole uh, the whole town basically just kind of leans in because this is nothing like they've heard before. So we're going to pick up in verse forty-four, uh, Acts chapter thirteen, verse forty-four. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of. The Lord And I'm just going to kind of pause on various verses and walk through here. But if you've ever wondered the power of the gospel, here it is revealed and all through the book of Acts. There was nothing fancy. There was no lights, there was nothing, no air conditioning, there was no cushioned seats, there was nothing appealing other than the proclaimed word that Jesus saves. And it was so impactful that after one sermon, the, almost the entire city begins to gather in and listen. And if you read through Acts, it happens over and over and over again. It's not complicated. We have a problem, the problem is sin, and Jesus has come to solve that problem. And it draws people in. Verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. So uh, the Jews that he's referring to here um, would have been those of religious significant standing power, those who maybe were the synagogue leaders. Um, Basically, what they were seeing was all of their influence was beginning to crumble in front of them. Um, The people that they thought they had sway with, now they're all listening in to Paul and Jesus and that whole conversation. And what's really fascinating is that the objections that Paul gets all throughout Acts is the same objections that Jesus got. It was from religious people. It was from the established religious circles who said, no, 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 we don't want your Jesus. We're good with our moralism. We're, we're just mistakers and we're, you know, we're pretty confident in our ability to choose rightly. And so we don't need you where the message of Jesus is you're not a or you're a sinner and you need a rescue. And that, that offended them. But something really important is happening here. Jesus was born into a Jewish bloodline, into the Jewish family, and so um, the message went first to the Jews, and this is kind of uh, the key turning point where if you are not a Jew by natural descent, you now can hear, and the gospel is now being presented to all of us. So unless you are here today and of Jewish descent, that includes you. You are a Gentile. You probably didn't know that before you walked in today. I am a Gentile. It is just a word that means anybody who is not Jewish. This is huge because at this point now the whole world has access to the hope of Jesus. And Paul says in verse 47, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. And I'll come back to that verse uh, later on. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Let's keep reading verse 50. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. You see what happens there? Paul says, okay, you don't want to hear it. That's fine. We're going to preach it to those who do want to hear it. And he just begins to proclaim the gospel and they begin to stir up persecution against them. We don't know um, exactly what that means in this chapter, um, but basically they, it says they heaped abuse on him. Well, in the next chapter, they, they move on to another city. Paul is literally stoned almost to death. They dragged him out of the city because of preaching the gospel. Um, so we can kind of assume it was pretty bad, but probably not being stoned to death or almost near death kind of bad. It, it was really interesting to me as I read this who his opposition was. It was, dare I even say it, the moral majority. It was those who um, had taken and assimilated their faith with their national um, identity and combined the two to a place of power and leverage. That's who Jesus was um, Pushing against, that's who Paul is pushing against, and that's who's pushing back. Now, here's uh, why. Because the message of Jesus offends people who thinks they're all right. It offends people who thinks they're mostly good because what it says is none of us are good enough. We need a rescue from outside, and that affects and offends our pride. And so that's where some of this uh, persecution is coming from, but it's also coming from the fact that the world is under control of darkness, and darkness doesn't like it when light comes and sheds light where there is need for hope. And so this is where the persecution comes from. And Paul goes on to to say and do this in the next verse. So they, took, they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were... Um, If persecution was heaped on you and you were run out of a city, um, while you're driving down the road, you're probably not going to go, yeah, that was awesome, right? These guys are just joyful and filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, in in the middle of the persecution, it's easy to miss the fact that a whole bunch of people just got saved. In the middle of the hardship of being uh, heaped with abuse, a whole bunch of people found hope in Jesus, and so they're stoked about that. They, They are just electrified about it. But also... They understand something that Jesus made very, very clear. That those who follow him will endure persecution. Those who choose to preach and teach uh, what Jesus taught will assuredly face persecution, potentially beating, because the servant is not greater than the master. I just said that recently. And so I think for them, what it was saying was, we must be on the right track. (laughs) We must be doing something for the kingdom of light because the kingdom of darkness is pushing back against us. And so they're, they're just absolutely ecstatic about it. One of the things that I think can be easy to feel, and maybe you can relate to this, is um, I thought it a lot growing up, and I, I've, I thought it recently, but not as much. But it, it feels like darkness is winning the day, doesn't it? Like, it, it doesn't take long. You just spend 15 minutes on Twitter or on the news, and it feels like darkness is winning. Um, that this whole thing of Jesus's plan, of you going and having one-on-one conversations and preaching the good news, like it worked in the 50s, but it doesn't really seem to be working right now. Like, that's kind of what it feels like sometimes, but it's just not true. See, I think sometimes we wanna push back against uh, the man and we wanna um, fight and be rebellious and we're gonna win this. And what I see from the way of Jesus is that it's totally different. That if you wanna be a rebel, it means sharing the gospel. If you want to go countercultural, it means serving people who hate you and not firing shots back then. If you want to uh, be uh, different, it means showing up to church every week. If you want to be rebellious, it means being compassionate and kind when the world won't be. See, I think the reason we've missed it is because we've been fighting with the wrong tools, but I also want you to understand that God's greatest work isn't happening in America. It's just not. Not that because we're not praying for it, but it, it's just not. And here's what I mean. I'll throw this screen up. We can go ahead and throw all these up. I want you to see um, there's also this kind of narrative that Christianity is this white, Western, colonial religion that we're just shoving down people's throat. It couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, What you'll notice here is that um, the the predominant religions are very heavily held in Asia. Um, The Muslim is mostly in North Africa. Um, There's a heavy Muslim influence there. But Christianity is the only true world religion. It is the only one that is mostly or that is entirely across the world. And in fact, what you'll see if you look closely is that Christianity is more African than it is American. Christianity is more South American than it is North American. Christianity and the message of Jesus is alive and well, and God is doing incredible things. And this actually isn't even a totally fair representation because um, in Asia, um, it's actually much higher than this. But the reality is, in the underground church in China, if you admit that you're a believer, you are surely imprisoned or killed. And so they don't publicly necessarily say it, but um, after having served right off the coast and have a lot of friends working there, the underground church is alive and Well, it is absolutely flourishing. There's so many Christians, they don't even quite know what to do with them and keeping them all safe in house churches. Like, just flourishing. And so while it looks like darkness is winning the day, we're just looking in the wrong corner. God is doing a great work all across the world. What's also really cool is um, if you've been around church any period of time, you've heard people talk about Bible translations and getting the Bible translated into every language. And there's about 6,000, a little over 6,000 spoken languages out there. And it's been a huge effort for so many people to translate the Bible. And we used to um, uh, sponsor a couple Um, Who worked to translate that? And kind of the motto at the the day was a one team, one translation, one lifetime. It literally would take a lifetime to translate um, a text, but because of technology and how we've advanced, um, it has absolutely skyrocketed. So 80% of the world's population um, has a uh, excuse me, yeah, 90% has the New Testament. 80% has the entire Bible. There is only 3% of spoken languages that don't yet have the Bible in them. In 1990, they said that it was going to take about 130 years for that to happen. Um, Wycliffe, one of the main translators, just came out and said by 2025, they should have um, the last 3% covered. And the Bible or a version of the Bible that has the gospel or not version, a portion of the Bible that has the gospel will be available in every language which is incredible. That's like 115 years sooner than they anticipated. And 115 years, is a lot of lives that can be changed because the message of Jesus has gotten there. That's, that's huge. God is still moving. One of the other ways that we see it, and this one's a little bit more complicated. It's not quite as face value, um, but it's how Christianity affects poverty. Um, Back in 1980, it's a little hard to see up there, but um, around the world, there was about 40% of the people who still lived in extreme poverty. And and largely because of both uh, nonprofit organizations and Christian organizations just pouring billions of dollars every year into this, uh, the number is now below 9%. Uh, which is incredible. Uh, There's still work to be done. Hello, friend. Um, (laughs) There's still work to be done. uh, But that is so crazy that it is below 9%. Now, unfortunately, uh, because of COVID um, and kind of the mishandlings of that, the number has gone back up by 2%. It has set us back about five to 10 years globally. Um, but, But here's the thing about poverty, and here's why I said it's not necessarily face value. Poverty is never a lack of resources issue. There are crates and shiploads of food that never make it to countries in need. They sit in ports, they get taken, they get robbed, they get held, right? The problem is thin. Is that men in power have this, women in power have this, and they refuse to give it to those in need because of some ego trip or some power trip because darkness has a hold there. And so the answer to poverty is yes, more food, but it's also the gospel. In which we are taught to be generous and we 're taught to give, and we 're not taught to hurt our brother, we're not taught to steal, like because we 're chained because we don 't need those things, right? So um, you can give all the food you want, but apart from the heart being transformed, right it's, it's not going to get there. And so um, we believe that they go hand in hand. So we want to teach a guy um, how to make his own food, and we, we do that through some of our ministries, but we also want to share the hope of Jesus because that's what's ultimately needed there to solve. That problem so I want to share with you guys a couple a um, couple ministries that we partner with who do this um, who are part of bringing life change um, at, at Bridgewater we have 12 uh, partners or excuse me 11 partners that we uh, work with and uh, we have adopted a couple here specifically at Halstead that we work with and um, we partner with more closely so that we can have a better relationship and one of them is food for the hungry um, that. Um, You'll see a booth out there, David mentioned it. Food for the Hungry is a really, really cool program. We adopted two villages um, and working to, um, there's this whole kind of 10 to 12, I think it's 10 to 12 years, correct me if I'm wrong, a 10 to 12 year process for um, a village to grow up. It's not just child sponsorship, it's kind of sponsoring the whole village. Um, And basically by the time they get through this whole process, that village should be set up to never suffer with malnutrition ever again. Um, And this region is especially impacted by this. Um, So one of the ways you can do that is by jumping in and grabbing a a kid to sponsor. Um, This is a really cool way to do it. Uh, I told the first service uh, when I was 16, I was at a Christian rock concert, uh, Judge Knot. And um, they were talking from World Vision about child sponsorship. And uh, there was all these packets going across the top. And I had my hands in my pocket just like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And I just grabbed one I was like, I work at Cold Stone. I can't afford this. All right. a was 16 trying to put gas in my eight miles per gallon truck. Um, but it was awesome. And I was able to sponsor that girl for a, a lot of years. Uh, she's from Peru. It, it just changed my life being able to do that. So I'd encourage you to grab one of those back there if you if you can. It's cool to do pen pals if you have kids as well. Uh, another one that we sponsor um, is Jake. Jake was here a couple weeks ago. Um, if you were able to uh, connect with him, just an incredible, incredible ministry that those guys are doing. They work on the slums of Ethiopia. Uh, there's about 130,000 people uh, who live on the garbage dump, essentially living off of the dump. And so they're working in mean, a lot of different ways to try to empower and change the narrative for these individuals. There's obviously a lot of uh, fatherlessness and disease and orphans and widows. And so um, they, they have a program for the orphan and vulnerable children. Uh, they also have an elder's home for the those disabled by leprosy, uh, which is a really... Um, Fascinating ministry that they're able to do that. The medical clinic, they do education empowerment, they do job training, and then they, they obviously do feeding sites. Um, if you want, all of these uh, missionaries are in the back in that corner on a, a table there. Uh, if you want to find some more information about them, uh, Jake's doing a really cool work over there. Another partner that we have, um, I, I love these guys. I love all these guys, but these guys are doing some, some really cool stuff over there. Uh, Alan and his family went with a friend to launch a hospital in Togo. And um, kind of after they got going, it just exploded. God really blessed it. But his friend, who was the head physician, passed away. Um, and so he's been trying to run this whole thing and also not having medical training himself. And uh, God has just is just absolutely blessed this thing. There's uh, 16,000 patients that they see every year, over 1,000 surgeries. And it's so well-renowned that there's literally people traveling from all over West Africa to come to this hospital. And he says their triage line sometimes can take three days. Because it's just there's just so many people coming through, uh, but people know it's a Christian hospital, so when they come in, they get to talk to um, a chaplain and hear the good news of Jesus. And literally, the stories he tells, like this guy's a storyteller. I love. I actually asked him to come speak to you, but he's currently getting his physician's assistant degree, so he can go back and work on the medical side of things as well. Um, but literally, villages are being transformed over there by the work these guys are doing, and it's really really cool to see. Um, we also uh, support CareNet. Uh, Is a local in Susquehanna County, this is our crisis pregnancy center uh, that works with men men and women in crisis pregnancy situations to support them and resource them and encourage them in any way that they can. Uh, So we support them locally. We think that is an incredible ministry. Um, But I also wanted to mention one more. It's the Simons. If you've been around since November, um, we were able to, as a church, pull some money together and donate a significant amount of money to their ministry. And these guys are rock stars, man. Back in 1972, they were one church. Um, there's about 62 churches now. Um, they planted six in one year a couple of years ago, pre-COVID. Um, just, and they have a, a training where they train pastors up, just exploding in one of the most heavily persecuted nations um, out there. Like, to be a Christian is to basically walk death row for some of these guys. Um, and you guys just doing incredible, incredible things. And so uh, we were able to bless them. Their house was condemned, and they were in need of one. Um, you can continue to pray for them, though. The government, basically, right now, they actually just did this to Mother Teresa's organization. Um, but they're starting to revoke Christian licenses and their ability to operate within the country. Uh, and so we didn't just be praying for those guys that God would keep moving through uh, that nation. But that, that's what you get to be a part of. There's a bunch more. I'd encourage you to read them and read about them. But what I want to highlight about these guys is this. They understand Acts 13 really well. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It's easy for us um, in in our lives just to be so busy to miss the fact that this doesn't say suggest. It doesn't say imply when it's convenient. It says we've been commanded as followers of Jesus to go bring the good news to the ends of the earth. And the reality is most of you are probably not getting on a plan to go to Togo, Africa and work in a hospital, though they would love to have you. But the truth is, you're probably going to walk across the street. You're going to run into somebody at the grocery store. You're going to see somebody at school. You're going to see somebody at work who needs Jesus. And if that chart is any evidence, America may be just as front lines as some of the other places. It might look different. It might feel different. But the hope of Jesus is needed just as much here. Because the reality is, and I want to read these numbers so I don't mess them up. There is a sad reality and I said in the next year, 60 million people will die. Over 164,000 people every day. Those aren't COVID numbers. Those are just death numbers. What we believe the word of God teaches is that without the hope of Jesus, that eternity looks very different. And so it's not a, when we get to it. It's a, it's a command that if you're a follower of Jesus, this has been placed on you. Because the thing about the good news is it's only good news if it gets there on time. It's only good news if it gets there on time. And so the commands have a time clock on it. So uh, my kind of closing question for us this morning is similar to my opening question. It's, are you willing to bring salvation to those in need? As a Christian, you have what the world needs most. What are we going to do with it? On your seat, there's a card there that says, Pray, Invest, Invite. I want you to grab that. Um, You'll probably need a marker to write on these. They're a little bit shiny so the pen doesn't quite work. But um, here's what I want you to do. Pray, Invest, Invite. I want you to write three names down. Three names of people that you know that need the hope of Jesus. Um, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. Um, man, the greatest thing you could do would be to enter into a relationship with him, surrender and find that he will take your sin, your sorrow, your suffering, your pain and, and exchange it for his glory and the good and life. And there's just no better transaction that could ever take place. But for those of you who do know him, Who are three people that you know need Jesus? Go ahead and write their names down. Then I want you to do a couple things. I want you to pray for them every day. Stick this on your thing when you think about speeding. Like put it right where you shouldn't speed and just set it right there. And and just say, all right, God, you love them more than I do. You went to the cross to die for them. Would you reveal yourself to them? Would you rescue them? Would you show yourself to them? And then I want you to invest in their life. And not just invest in their life so that you can have the conversation, invest in their life because they matter, because they matter to God. Would you spend time with them? Would you meet a need? Whatever that would look like. And then the second thing would be invite. Maybe that's you having a personal conversation and inviting them to follow Jesus. Or maybe that's you inviting them to church so they can come sit and listen to uh, the word be taught to them that way. Here's why this is important it's your one job. I do a lot of things, I wear a lot of hats, you do a lot of things, you, you, you wear a lot of hats. Few things will have more weight in eternity than what we do with the message of Jesus. And so let's steward it well because the world needs to know about the hope in Jesus because Jesus went all the way to the grave that everyone might know that there is hope in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Thanks for not leaving us here. Thanks for not leaving us in our sin. Thank you that death was not too far for you to go to rescue us. God, I pray for every heart in this room that doesn't know you yet, that hasn't experienced your love and your grace and your mercy. I pray that today would be the day where your love just overwhelms them, that you would come to rescue them. God, I pray for every heart in the room that has accepted you that the wonder of that would never be lost, that we wouldn't be bored with Jesus, but we would be um, set uh, ablaze to know you more and to spread the glory of your name. God, we need courage. Um, it can be scary to have these conversations and the what-ifs of worrying what they might think of us, God, but, but nothing matters more. I pray that we would be um, fearless, God as we proclaim the message of your hope. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.